Good morning to you. Uh, my name is Matt Lewoyne. Uh, if we've not met, uh, I'm the pastor of Liberty Church uh, here in Harrisburg. We're part of a family of churches. Uh, about three years ago, we had the privilege of starting a site uh, of one of those churches in Philadelphia here uh, in the Harrisburg region, uh, and I've had the privilege of, of pastoring that, so it's been a, an honor each Sunday to come and to uh, get to open up God's Word and teach. I, I, um, I never want teaching from the Word of God to become rote in my own life, and I never want it to become rote for you in, in hearing it. Um, so I constantly pray that God would, like we sang about this morning, renew our awe. Uh, we'd be awestruck at the wonder of the name of Jesus, that he would renew that and restore that in us over and over again. So that's been my prayer for us uh, this week as it is every week when we come to the Word of God. Uh, if you have Bibles, we're going to be in John chapter 14 today. We'll actually start at the very end of chapter 13 in verse 36 and then go into the first 14 verses of chapter 14. So if you're using one of those black hardcover Bibles, um, page 900 is where that starts and then kind of spills over into uh, page 901. Many of you are probably familiar with the uh, Hollywood director M. Night Shyamalan. Everybody familiar with him? If you're familiar with any of his, his movies, the stories he tells, he's made an entire career out of the plot twist. He's made his, at least the early movies that he produced and he directed were all, all had some major plot twist uh, in them. Something that was meant to catch the audience off guard. Something that was meant to leave you when it happened thinking, I did not see that coming at all. The Sixth Sense, The Village, some of these movies that he's, that he's well known for. Plot twists and unexpected turns, they, they make really good stories. But it's one thing to appreciate them in literature or appreciate them in film. It's an entirely different thing to experience them in your own life. Um, when you're a character in the story, those dramatic turning points, those plot twists that happen in life, they take your feet out from underneath you. They can leave you scrambling for answers, for explanations, maybe that come, maybe that, that don't come. And depending on the circumstances and then depending on how your specific personality responds to those things, what that looks like can be drastically different. We have really different responses to these dramatic turning points and twists and turns in our life. Um, maybe we try to bounce back really quickly. Maybe we freeze up. We become paralyzed. Maybe we start to question everything that we've ever known to be true in life. We doubt. Whatever it looks like, we might call it disequilibration. I want to introduce and pose a new word to you this morning. Disequilibration. Um, and some of you maybe are in a moment like that right now, and you're like, yeah, that, that word actually just makes sense. If equilibration is like everything's in balance and everything kind of makes sense, disequilibration is the opposite of that. It's all gone to heck. It's all chaos. Uh, it's all not the way it's supposed to be. And we're thrown off, and we're not quite sure of the way back in that moment. Well, that's the context of the passage that we're going to be in today at the end of John 13 and then John 14. In the Gospel of John, which we've been in now for a couple months, uh, chapter 13 is a big turning point in the narrative of, of John's Gospel. The first 12 chapters of this book, uh, they're sometimes referred to as the book of signs. And that's because it's, they're, they're characterized by all of these miraculous works that Jesus does. He's out among people doing powerful works of compassion and mercy to heal people, to restore what's been broken. And these 12 men, these disciples, and then other men and women who follow him get to see that and experience that up front. So it's called the Book of Signs. 
Chapter 13 begins the second half of the gospel, which is called the Book of Glory, which is the the narrative of Jesus' passion uh, leading to the cross, leading to his resurrection, leading to his ascension into heaven. The main transition comes at the beginning of chapter 13, where Jesus, knowing that his hour has come, knowing that the moment in history for him to act has come, resolutely sets his face toward Jerusalem, toward the location where that greatest of his acts is going to take place, his death and resurrection. For us, reading this way after the events happen, we have the benefit of knowing the whole story before we even really start it. But for the 12 disciples, I want you to imagine just how upending this turn would be that begins in John chapter 13. Jesus has predicted that he's going to suffer and die. He's done that in those years that he's been with the disciples. But it doesn't really land for them until this particular moment. The 12 of them are gathered. They're in the upper room. They're celebrating the Passover meal together. And Jesus' tone becomes really somber in that moment. And he says, one of you who are sitting here at the table with me is going to betray me. I'm going to be turned over to the authorities, and I'm actually going to be sent to my death. And soon after that happens, Judas Iscariot, the the betrayer, he gets up from the table and he leaves and he goes out. So this is where it really sinks in. The sting of the betrayal of one of their brothers who was around the table with them. The reality that, that Jesus is going to die. It's not just one of the parables or the metaphors that Jesus tells so often. It's not a parable about his death. And this is actually going to happen. So step into that for just a second. Taste a little bit, if you can, of the disequilibration that that would create in the life of one of the uh, 11 disciples remaining around the table with Jesus. It's that kind of experience where you might, you might be able to tap into this if you think about what the, the events that have happened to you in your life that have left you uh, upended, have left you searching for answers, have left you without clear direction in your life. It's that kind of experience for them. And what we have in this text today is really, it's really a gift from God. You know, Scripture isn't just true, it's helpful. And really nothing makes a 1,900-year-old document more relevant to us than when we can see ourselves doing the exact same thing as the characters who are actually there in the story. And the gift to us in Scripture this morning is that we see these disciples respond in really different ways. The other gift, the even better gift of that, is that Jesus doesn't remain silent in the midst of that. That he actually speaks into each of the different kinds of responses that the disciples have in that moment. To each of their reactions, different as they are, Jesus has something to say, something to ground their perspective, something to give them their footing back in the midst of that upending, disequilibrating kind of feeling that they're in. So as Jesus speaks to them, he also speaks to us as we read this morning. I'm going to pick it up in John 13, 36, and then read through 14, 14. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Let not your hearts be troubled. 
Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father." Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. And this is God's word. Let me pray for us. God, we look to you as we look to you each moment of every day, and we ask that you would speak to us. We ask that we would be ready to receive what you would say to us wherever we find ourselves this morning. Some of us are upended. Some of us feel upended, God. You know that. You know how we would respond. You know how we are responding. And I pray that into that, as you've made us distinct, as you've made us in your image, and you know the the ways that in our brokenness we would respond to that, I pray you would meet us right there, and you would help us to see Jesus, and Jesus, that your words and your truth to us right where we're at would, would call us back to you, that we would see you, Jesus, truly as the way. Uh, we look to you for this, and we pray this in your name. Amen. So there's really three uh, disciples that we get to see a little bit of a glimpse of how they respond in, in this text. And we're going to look at each of those. There's Peter, and then there's Thomas, and then there's Philip. Confronted as they are here with Judas's betrayal and then the impending death that's coming to Jesus, they are troubled in heart. It's the language that, that, the, that the Gospel of John uses. They're troubled in heart. To each disciple, then, and to each specific struggle, Jesus uses this discerning care and wisdom to meet them right where they're at. And so first, into Peter's self-reliant resolve, Jesus speaks promise. To Peter's self-reliant resolve, Jesus speaks promise. Jesus is talking here about departure. It's one of the themes that comes up in this text a couple times. And there's really a couple levels to it. Um, One element of his departure is that he's going to die. That's a departure. He's going to, uh, to the cross, and he's going to die. But there's also another departure. He's going to depart the world. So after his death, after his resurrection, he's going to ascend to God the Father. He's going to return to heaven where he came from. That would be, for these 11 men who remain around the table, a very dramatic turning point. Imagine having personal access to the Son of God in the flesh one moment, 
And then a few days later, not anymore. It's, it's a drastic difference in their outlook and the way they've done life for the past couple years. And this troubles Peter. And you can hear the troubled heart, the fear, and the frustration that's coming out of the questions that he's asking. Jesus, where are you going? And can I come? Why can't I come? Why can't I come now? The way Peter deals with that being troubled in heart, that fear, that frustration, is a self-reliant resolve. He says, well, if you're going to go now, Jesus, then I'm going with you. I'm going to go with you. I will lay down my life for you. What does Jesus say back to him in that moment? Uh, If this were the movie Top Gun, this would be the moment when the captain turns to Maverick, the character played by Tom Cruise, and he says, son, your ego is writing checks that your body can't cash. Your ego is writing checks that your body can't cash. He says to Peter, actually, Peter, before there's a new day, before a new day dawns, you're going to deny that you even know me three times. So here's the thing about Peter. And we got to look at Peter's life even more this past fall when we looked at one of the letters that he wrote. But Peter is zealous. And he's zealous in a way that's really beautiful. Like once he's convinced that Jesus is the Christ, he is all in. He's there. The problem is that in his zeal, at least in this instance and a few others like it, his zeal is rooted in his own resolve. His confidence is an overconfidence because it's based in himself. And that's exactly the way that some of us respond to upending events and circumstances in our lives. We're solvers. We're doers. Anybody else like that? That's me. I mean, I resonate with Peter's response here more than I do anybody else's. We become self-reliant. And in that self-reliance, we make promises, we make commitments that we can't possibly follow through on. A few years back, um, I was on an overseas mission trip uh, when one of the teammates um, that was there with us, with our team, uh, got word from home that his dad had passed away while we were there. It wasn't uh, completely unexpected. His dad had been declining in his health for a number of years at that point. Uh, But it was unexpected in that everybody on the team, including him, thought that he would be able to go on this trip overseas and come back and still have plenty of time to to be around his father. And and that that wasn't the case. He he died while we were gone. What I'll always remember is the way that this teammate responded right after getting the news. Like within about 10 minutes or so of getting the phone call back from the States um, that his, his dad had passed away, he responded with a passionate zeal. And he said something like this, God is going to use me on this trip, maybe even today, maybe even the next couple hours, to see someone come to faith in Christ. And I remember in that moment not knowing exactly what to do with that response. Because on the one hand, I loved it. I was like, that's, that's awesome. Like, you're aware in this moment keenly of how fragile life is. And what that does in your heart and mind is it makes you want to give somebody else a hope that lasts longer than this life. And that's beautiful. Like, may God always use death when it happens to us in our family or just in general in the world. May God always use death to remind us that life's a vapor and to use it well. But I also remember in this response feeling a little bit odd. Like, what is that exactly? Like, it doesn't feel exactly like a, like a, like a really beautiful response. I wasn't exactly sure what it was. And as I was reading this text this week, it clicked for me. It's Peter's response here. It's Peter's response. 
an urgent, zealous resolve. We want to do something significant for Jesus. We want to do something, but it's something that we can't really promise and guarantee a delivery on ourselves. So what would Jesus say to us in a moment like this when we're tempted to respond with a self-reliant resolve? Well, what's he say to Peter? Into Peter's self-reliant resolve, Jesus speaks promise. He speaks words of promise, and not just any promise, an eternal promise. He looks past his death and his resurrection. He looks past those 40 days that he spends on the earth with Jesus. And he looks to his ascension and his second coming back to the earth. He says, I go to prepare a place for you. I go to prepare an eternal home for you. I will bring you to myself. So we can't miss what what Jesus does here in, in those words. He changes the focus from Peter's self-reliant resolve in the present to a confident hope based in Jesus' work in the future. He turns it around. Peter's response is, okay, I'm going to double down. I'm going to get this done. Let me figure this out. Jesus says, don't look to that in the present. Look to my future work. So if we're like Peter, we're prone to replace faith with our own resolve. But what Jesus says here is, forget your own resolve. Forget your own resolve, because to the degree that your hope rests in your own ability to get things done, that is the degree to which you will be disappointed and disillusioned in this life. We will let ourselves down if that's where our hope lies. Our egos, to quote Top Gun, will write checks that our body can't cash, and will zealously pursue things that we can't follow through on, that we can't deliver on. So Jesus says, don't trust your resolve. Trust my resolve instead. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In other words, it doesn't matter what you promise to do, Peter. Here's what I promise to do. Here's what I promise to do. I will go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And I will bring you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. When the circumstances of life upend us, we're meant to find our footing. We're meant to find our footing on Jesus' resolve and his promises, not on our own. And so Jesus speaks and he points Peter to this eternal hope with him, one that's based completely on Jesus' ability to follow through on his commitments and promises, not on our own ability to follow through on our promises and commitments. And if you trace out the the story through the rest of Scripture and the rest of church history, Peter does find his footing there. He finds his footing trusting the resolve of Jesus. And the strongest evidence for that is that he actually does eventually make good on this commitment that he'll lay down his life for Jesus. Although when he does it, it's not based on an urgent zeal rooted in himself. It's based on what Jesus has already done. It's based on what Jesus has already accomplished and the promise that Jesus is coming again to rescue and to redeem. So that's Peter. Second, Thomas gets to speak up. And into Thomas's disorientation, Jesus speaks direction. Into Thomas's disorientation, Jesus speaks direction. So Jesus tells the apostles there in verse 4 of chapter 14, you know the way to where I'm going. And Thomas replies, well, hang on a second, Jesus. How can we know the way to where you're going if we don't really know where you're going? 
How can we know that? What's happening here? Thomas is disoriented. He's disoriented. As this reality of Jesus' death becomes more real to him, as he's starting to like taste that a little bit and, and know that it's not just a metaphor or a parable, he starts to think in terms of a location on a map. As if like Jesus just would give him the address, he could put it into his GPS and find his way to where Jesus is going. Thomas knows better than that, because this isn't the first time Jesus has talked about this in the presence of, of the Twelve. So he knows better than that, but as he's upended, as he's disequilibriated, he's forgotten what he knows to be true. And that's the same thing that happens to some of us when we find ourselves in those kind of circumstances in life. We forget what we already know to be true. We forget what we've already learned and experienced in our, in our past. We forget that. It's like we're starting from scratch. We can't, we can't find any kind of direction. And it's not altogether unlike trying to, trying to drive a car on ice and winding up in a tailspin. Um, something that perhaps maybe you even had a chance to experience yourself this week with the weather we've had. When I was uh, just beginning to drive, so I was 16 or 17, uh, my parents sent me to a defensive driving course. And by far, my favorite part of the defensive driving course was the simulated ice track of the defensive driving course. So the way it worked was there was this giant skid pad set up, and they watered it down. And I would sit in the driver's seat, and there was an instructor who sat next to me in the passenger seat. And he told me to pick up a bunch of speed and head straight for this skid pad. And right when we got to the front of the the skid pad, he said, okay, put it in neutral, take your hands off the wheel, and hit the emergency brake. So we got to the skid pad, put it in neutral, took my hands off the wheel, hit the emergency brake. He reaches over from the passenger seat immediately, grabs the wheel, pulls it, and holds it there. Which, in case you're curious, sends the car into a fun fun little spin. He kind of waits for, it probably was like half a second. It feels like an eternity. He kind of holds it there. Then he lets go and he says, okay, get us out of the spin. How do you get, how do you get out of a spin in that moment? This is, if you ever get a chance to do this, I totally recommend it. It's, <laughs> it's fun. And I, know so, I saw some parents looking at me like, why are you teaching my young driver how to put your car into a spin? Like, this is dangerous. Um, what, what's the key to getting out of a spin like that? The instructors taught us this, that you have to keep your eyes on where you want to go. you got to keep your eyes on where you want to go. If you just keep watching the world spin around, like if you're in the car and you just keep doing this, you don't have a chance. You have to somehow get your eyes back to the lane where you want to go and try to navigate the car there. You have to find a fixed point and fix your eyes on that fixed point. And there's such wisdom in that beyond just how to get a car out of a, out of a tailspin. What we need when we're disoriented in life is something stable to lock our eyes on. And that's exactly what Jesus gives to Thomas in this moment. Into Thomas' disorientation, the world's spinning. What do I stand on, Jesus? He speaks direction. Thomas, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Stop the tailspin. You know the way because I am the way. It's me. Verse 6 of uh, chapter 14 there. If you've been in church for any period of time, it's probably a familiar verse to you. It's a well-known verse in the church. Here's what I would submit to you this morning. We can't reduce 
John chapter 14, verse 6, to simply a doctrinal position. And here's what I mean by that. We live in a pluralistic world, pluralistic culture, that often attempts to affirm some version of all roads lead to the same place. It's what a lot of people in our world would believe. All roads lead to the same place. And in contrast, Jesus makes exclusive claims here in this text. He says, I'm God, and I'm also the way to God. I'm the destination, and I'm the means of getting to that destination. And no one comes except through me. So on the one hand, we we don't do justice to the words of Jesus if we pretend that he doesn't say hard things that are counter to the spirit of the day and age in which we live. He says hard things that are counter to what a lot of people in in our world believe. But don't miss the context of the question here. What question is Jesus answering when he says those words? Thomas doesn't come to Jesus and ask him about other religions and other worldviews. Thomas asks, how can he know the way to the Father? So Jesus' answer is direction to a disoriented man, not cold and impersonal doctrine. His words are meant to orient and to reorient disoriented people. So it's true. Not all roads lead to the same place. No one comes except through Jesus. But as we affirm that truth, we have to affirm that truth with hearts of compassion for the billions of people who are disoriented in our neighborhoods and in our nation and in our world. Every single person is seeking salvation in some form or another. Every single person in the world. Many of those people have encountered the message of Jesus and they've either forgotten or suppressed what they've already heard. They're disoriented. Many, many more have never heard. They're not, even, they're not disoriented, not even oriented to Jesus at all. And Thomas here actually becomes for us a great example of how we should respond to the direction of Jesus. The direction that Jesus speaks to Thomas and the rest of these apostles becomes motivation, becomes compulsion for them to help orient and reorient the disoriented people of the world. So church history records that after Jesus ascends to heaven, Thomas becomes a missionary to India. Thomas has a compassion on people far beyond his own people group, far beyond his own borders. And it's because Jesus is the way. Jesus is the truth. Jesus is the life. And because Jesus is the way, just like Thomas, we can have direction in the midst of our own disorientation. When we're spinning, when we're spinning, when we, when we feel like we don't have a thing to land on, we can have direction in the midst of that. We can learn to lock our eyes on Jesus as the way. And as Jesus then speaks direction into our own disorientation, we're transformed into the kind of people not only who are oriented to Jesus ourselves, but who get to help orient and reorient other people to Jesus as well. We get to invite them into the same thing that we ourselves so desperately need. So Peter is self-reliant. Thomas is disoriented. Philip is the third apostle that we encounter here. And it's Philip's reluctance. Into Philip's reluctance, Jesus speaks power. Into Philip's reluctance, he speaks power. So Jesus has just said, uh, to know me is to know the Father. To see me is to see the Father. But that doesn't register with Philip in this moment. He says, Lord, show us the Father. It is enough. 
It's enough for us. Just show me God the Father. It will be enough. And that might sound sincere. It might sound like a pious statement. But think for a second, what what is Philip actually asking for here? He's asking for God, the eternal God, to visibly show up in front of him. Who does God show up for visibly in front of in the history of the world? Nobody. Nobody. Moses gets to see God pass by, the glory of God pass by, the cleft of the rock. Isaiah gets to see the throne room of God, and it just floors them to a level. They can't even, I mean, they're they weeping, essentially saying, like, I can't take this. I am not holy enough to stand in the presence of God just to see that part of God. God doesn't, doesn't do this. He doesn't make a habit of showing up visibly to people. So this isn't a sincere piety from Philip. It's not even a lack of understanding. What is this? It's reluctance. It's reluctance. And it's exactly how some of us might respond in the disequilibrating circumstances of life. Sometimes we're genuinely disoriented. We don't know what to do. Other times we know exactly what to do and we just don't want to. And we just don't want to. So we make excuses. So we throw a condition out there that has to be met before we're going to do anything about it or do anything with it. Maybe our conditions are not as radical as Philip's. Maybe we don't ask for God to visibly show up in front of us, but we probably ask for God to maybe audibly speak to us really clearly, or we ask God for somebody else to go first so that we don't have to be the first ones to move, something like that. When Philip does this, when we do that, What we're doing in that moment, we're failing to see and to believe that because Jesus is the way, we're given everything we need already in him. And so into Philip's reluctance, into our reluctance, Jesus speaks power. What power does Jesus speak of here to Philip? First, it's the power of himself, the power of Jesus himself. He repeats, Philip, you have seen the Father I am in the Father, the Father is in me. And you've seen the power of God at work in all these miraculous signs that you've witnessed over these past three years. That is the power of God tangibly demonstrated before your very eyes. You have seen it. But there's even more that Jesus says. As he's going to continue, this discourse that he begins here at the end of chapter 13 carries through John chapter 17. It's the longest Uh, discourse that we have of Jesus in Scripture. And as he continues on in this, which we'll get to in future weeks, he talks a lot about the coming of the Holy Spirit. See, Jesus, as he departs, we often associate departure with abandonment. But Jesus' departure is not an abandonment. He actually says, so here, I will not leave you as orphans. He's going to say that a couple verses after where we left off today. And strange as it sounds, Jesus going away, Jesus' departure, is actually the best thing in the world for the disciples. Why is that? Because when he departs, he's going to send the Holy Spirit. He's going to send God's own powerful spirit to work in them, to work through them, to empower the sons and daughters of God to actually live out their lives faithfully to Jesus. And Jesus here, at the end of Uh, the passage that we read in verses 12 through 14, he alludes to the two ways that that happens, where we're empowered by the Spirit. Two ways. We do the same kinds of works and even greater works than Jesus himself does. 
And also, we can ask for anything for the honor of God and in the name of Jesus, and he'll do it. We get to do the same works or greater works than Jesus, and we can ask anything in the name of Jesus, and God will answer. We've got to leave the specifics of what exactly that means and doesn't mean for, for another day. But do we see how that smashes down every possible excuse or condition that we would put up in our own reluctance? Whatever excuse you would use, whatever condition you, your, you yourself would, would put out there and say, well, I know God's kind of leading me to do this. I know he's kind of called all of his people to live this way. Whatever excuse would come to your mind of why that doesn't apply to you or why you shouldn't do that until something else happens, this smashes that. We're empowered by the Holy Spirit. We have access through prayer to the all-powerful, eternal God of the universe, which means that through Jesus, the way, the way to that Father, we've been given everything that we need. So what is it for you that has you upended in your life? What is it for you that creates this feeling of disequilibration? Some of you are there today, right now. Some of you, some of you, you, you know exactly and intimately what that feels like. Others of you have been there, will be there, In one way or another, this impacts each of us because we're either in a moment like that in our lives or we know someone in a moment like that in our lives. And whether it's then for you personally or whether it's to help you care for someone else who's there right now, let's see in these words of Jesus, in this text, two really important things. The first one is is that there are understandable reasons for why you feel the way you feel and respond the way that you respond. There's understandable reasons for why you feel the way you feel and, under, and respond the way you respond. We look at Jesus' disciples here, and it makes sense that they would react this way. Jesus is departing. It's a huge turning point in their lives. They, they don't know what to do with that. They're confused. And like the disciples, their circumstances in our lives that lead us to the same kinds of responses that they demonstrate here. When you're faced with those plot twists, those turning points in life, it's understandable that you might respond with a self-reliant resolve. It's understandable that you might respond with disorientation. It's understandable that you might respond with reluctance, with being paralyzed in that moment. When you experience that, you've got to see in Scripture and in the examples of these disciples that you're not crazy. And you're not alone. You're not the only one who goes through that and feels that. But secondly, and here's the completion of this that's so beautiful, when you're in those places, Jesus has something to say to you right there. And we have to actually let Jesus speak into these things. And we actually have to let other people help us apply the truth of Jesus to these places in our life. Because it might be understandable the way that we would respond to those things. It makes sense. But to stay there forever is to shortchange who Jesus is and what he offers to us in himself as the way. See, in this text, Jesus meets each of these three men exactly where they are. But he also calls each of these three men out of exactly where they are. How does he do that? Through him, through himself. He is the way through. He is the way out. And he says to them, believe and know and see 
and do and ask. He speaks into the self-reliance. He speaks into the disorientation. He speaks into the reluctance of his disciples. And it doesn't leave them unchanged. It doesn't leave them abandoned. It doesn't leave them where they are. And here's the beauty that we get to see as we, as we trace out the rest of the story through Scripture and through the history of the church. These are the exact people that Jesus uses to transform the world. He transforms them, and in turn, they are those who are used by him to transform the world. The self-reliant, who overestimate themselves in their zeal. The disoriented, who struggle to stand on what they already know to be true, who doubt, who wrestle, who can't seem to grasp the answers that they should already grasp. And the reluctant, who become paralyzed and who make excuses. Those are the people that God uses. And that means that I have a hope in the world. And that means that you have a hope in the world. That we actually can use our lives for things that matter and things that count and things that are significant in spite of however we would react like this. So wherever you are, whatever your outward response to a troubled heart looks like, whether it's today or whether it comes tomorrow or years from now, let Jesus speak into that place. Believe in God. Believe also in Jesus. He's the way. He's the truth, and he's the life. Amen. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we come, and as we prayed together in our prayer of confession today, um, we need you and the world needs you. And I pray that you would Meet us right where we are. And I pray, God, that as life happens, and with it comes these circumstances and the news and the events that upend us, that cut our legs out from under us, that leaves us scrambling and unaware of of how to proceed and move forward in life. I pray, God, that you would help us look to you, that we would not trust our own resolve, we'd trust yours that we would see that you are stable and fixed in the midst of our own spinning, that we would see that you've given us everything that we need by your Spirit, that we don't have to be paralyzed or frozen. You've invited us to experience the way to the Father because that way is you. And as we come to the table this morning, we're grateful, Jesus, that you did, with great resolve, set your face to Jerusalem to go to your death and resurrection. That's the only reason that we have hope like this in the world. And that you were faithful to that, that your resolve was not like Peter's in this instance. That your resolve was one that you followed through on. And that we get to look as we come to this table every week upon the great sacrifice that it was. So we pray that as we come this morning, we would remember the great gift, Jesus, that you have offered to us in your death and your resurrection. That you offered yourself that you made a way, you made the way for us back to a restored and reconciled relationship with God. We're grateful to you. And we come in that gratitude and we come longing for you to continue to work in our hearts. And we pray that in your name. Amen.